Hi, everyone. This is Dr. Cheryl Selman, and welcome to What Women Must Know. Thank you for joining me. We have another fantastic conversation. Um, I have to say, as I said many, many times, this, this, doing this podcast is such a gift. I have such gratitude because over the 20 years that I've been doing this podcast, I've been privileged to have amazing conversations with incredible people that I would probably never in my ordinary life be able to have a one-on-one conversation with. And you, all my listeners, get to listen in and enjoy it as much as I do. And I have to say, today's conversation is another really um, privileged conversation. So I'm so glad you're joining me. Um, I'm just going to jump right into things because we have a lot to talk about. So today we're going to be speaking with Leo Biddle, who is coming to us from Borneo, from Sarawak, actually, in Borneo. And uh, he's quite an an incredible and inspiring man. I will talk about his nonprofit and the work he's doing there. And we're going to be talking about rescuing injured and endangered native animals in Borneo, including the orangutans, and um, a lot of the other um, important work that Leo is doing over there in Borneo. So um, here's a little bit about Leo. Leo Biddle has been working in field conservation and illegal wildlife trade for the past 20-something years. We're getting a bit of feedback, Leo, whatever it is. Maybe it's through. Sorry, yeah, yeah, I apologize for my connection to your uh, listeners. Uh, uh, unfortunately, technology in Borneo is a little bit backwards still. Well, we'll just, everyone will just hang in there. So let me continue then. With a large focus on rescue and rehabilitation of primates and indigenous Borneo wildlife, having had extensive experience working in medical emergencies, Leo now has un, um, uh, has unparalleled field and medical experience with these animals. Leo founded the charitable organization Orangutan Project, now called Project Borneo, which has featured in National Geographic, Discovery, and Animal Planet. The charity's work is and was almost exclusively funded by a number of nonprofit businesses Leo created. These businesses also funded multiple grassroots children's charity and other animal charities. However, the last two years of the pandemic have effectively destroyed much of this work, with Leo now caring, only caring for a few animals. Leo has been a guest speaker at many universities and conferences around the world, representing a wide range of topics such as orangutan conservation and rehabilitation, field conservation, ethics, animal cognition, and the wildlife trade. Amongst his many other achievements, Leo has a degree in zoology and psychology and lived as a Taoist monk in Korea while training in Zen martial arts. So, everyone, you're going to have a treat of an amazing conversation and uh, uh, someone who's just totally dedicated his life to service to the animals and to conservation, to nature. So uh, it's my great pleasure to welcome you, Leo, to What Women Must Know. Thank you for joining us all the way from Borneo. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here and uh, look forward to having a conversation with you. 
Yeah, well, um, I just want to say, uh, just to begin this conversation, as I was sharing with you, when um, when I was introduced to your work and made contact with you, it just brought up all my past memories because when I was uh, at a university and was in the Peace Corps, so I joined the Peace Corps, I was sent to Malaysia, and uh, while I was in Malaysia, one of my adventures was to explore Borneo with a friend. And uh, I had the most amazing adventures in Sarawak and Asaba. Uh, we were just kind of on our own. We're not with a tour group. We just met amazing people. We uh, lived or at least stayed and had meals in long houses. I climbed the biggest mountain there. I was going over raging rivers and, you know, those in those uh, woven rope bridges, <laughs> you know, uh, and I had my encounter with leeches, and I have to say it was an incredible trip, and that was many, many, many decades ago. So this has all come flooding back, and I remember in in my Malay, uh, when I spoke Malay, uh, the, uh, uh, you know, I remember that the orangutans stood in, in Malay language was orange human. And that's what just comes to mind since we're having this conversation. So, so Leo, uh, thanks so much for being here. Your work is incredible. I, I'd like us to start with your journey as I asked um, my guests to share a little bit about what was their personal journey in life that led them to doing the work and service and the experiences that they now have. And uh, obviously... Your Taoist monk training in Korea is a good place to start. <laughs> it, yeah, it might have maybe been the start of the adventure, I guess, or certainly of an adult life. Um, I, I had a corporate job when I left university, and I don't even think I made one year there. Um, it, it paid really good money. I, I got promoted, was making a lot of cash, and, and for the first few months after being a poor student, I kind of thought that that was the right thing to do. Um, but yeah, it, it just quite quickly rang hollow and then I uh, quit the job. I, I don't even think I gave them very much notice and decided that I was going to enroll in a Buddhist monastery that uh, a friend who'd lived in Korea for a while got to know some of the monks there and arranged for a connection. And yeah, um, I went there really to get my head straight, I, I guess, to uh, think about what do I want to do with my life. And I, I knew I wanted to give something back. I knew I wanted to help. Um, uh, that those uh, humans or animals, so I was very open as to what direction I would go, uh, but, but help, help those that, that struggle to help themselves for whatever reason. And um, yeah, when they got a clear head, decided I didn't think I'd ever be part of the rat race. I don't, I don't think it was meant for me. Um, at first, started getting involved in looking at illegal wildlife trade. Uh, did a little bit of undercover work as a, a contractor for some of the big charities that investigate that kind of stuff. Started to get to know people uh, working field conservation, particularly around great apes, gorillas, and, and chimps primarily uh, to start with. And then later on, uh, I got invited to come over and consult on what was supposed to be a six-day project in Borneo to offer some advice to a struggling rehabilitation center there, uh, or here, I should say. Um, and I remember when I uh, arrived that there was a, a very poor orangutan that wasn't doing so well. So I ended up uh, extending my uh, stay for a bit longer, went off perhaps a bit like yourself, did a few adventures in the jungle, uh, saw what, what an interesting and magnificent place it was. Um, and then, then I, it, well, six days turned to six weeks quite quickly. In that period,
period of time, I, I'd ended up taking in quite a few additional animals that, that um, I felt uh, responsible for. Uh, unfortunately, at that time, there wasn't really any infrastructure here for others to look after it. Um, so ended up uh, staying six, six days, six uh, weeks, six months, and around the six-month mark, I realized that, that it would uh, take quite a, a considerable amount of time to make any sizable difference, both to individual animal lives that, that were coming into one rescue center in particular, uh, and also to, to uh, attempts to conserve, uh, to keep animals in the wild rather than coming into the elite pet trade or wildlife trade. Um, so established a charity, uh, set up a volunteering company and a tourism company. That, that's one of the major ways that a lot of uh, orangutan groups fund their work is, is through association with tourism. That carried on for probably about five years or so. Uh, and in that period of time, I'd gone down to Indonesian Borneo quite a lot, got to know most of the other people that were running these uh, rehab and rescue centers for orangutan, um, realized that they desperately needed help and money as well, and that the, my activities with the tourism and the volunteering weren't going to be enough to fund even my own charity's work, let alone to fund some of these other groups that desperately needed help. So then I started establishing non-profit businesses. I, I think my first was Monkey Bar, but that must be going back quite some time now. Um, the businesses proved very successful. Um, what, one thing that I did notice when, when I was building them is um, a, a lot of uh, people locally, and, and I, I needed them to come into the businesses to make money um, so that I could spend that money on, on, on charitable activities. They weren't really connecting with the wildlife issue. They, they weren't particularly interested in you know profit from their drinks going to help orangutan. So I diversified after a couple of years and started giving money to local charities that my customers would value and appreciate. So children's charities primarily, uh, a few disability charities, uh, uh, companion animals, cats and dog charities as well, shelters. And then that, that was when a real change started to happen. The locals started buying into what we were doing. I, I do think, um, so sorry if I'm monologuing a bit, but um, there is a perception over here that, okay, you know, orangutan, this is what foreigners come over. It's, it's a foreigner thing. Uh, it, it's not really an issue that people are particularly invested in. But when people were coming into the bars and the hotel that, that, that I built um, and then seeing, you know, the, the next week or the next month in the local newspaper that that same business was cutting a check to a children's charity, we got a huge amount of uh, buying uh, locally and, and people started seeing the uh, ventures as the charitable ventures that they were. So, um, yeah, I kept carried on uh, building uh, all, all of that up until about three years ago when it all got rather abruptly shut down. So, d did you have previous experience in running businesses and charities? No. How, well, I, I, I did set up a small business, a small security firm, um, you know, working doors in nightclubs and then being contracted out to do sort of security events and even a little bit of close protection work. So I had a tiny experience of business, but not really. Um, so, no, no, uh, uh, taught myself everything. Um, taught myself how to build. I think that's actually probably the most useful skills that, that, that I've acquired in all of this. Um, taught myself, I, I'm not a qualified vet and, and don't pretend to be one, but taught myself, you know, uh, the basic surgery, the, the basics of uh, uh, providing health care for these animals. Um, so, no, no, self-taught over a, a wide range of different subjects. And you have your initial degree in zoology, so obviously there was something that drew you to animals. 
Oh, definitely. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I, I, I mean, both actually. If there had been, you know, a degree course in, I don't know, combating corruption or, uh, you know, helping people, you know, humanitarian specific degrees, I would have looked at those also. Uh, but certainly, yeah, I, I think, I mean, for me, the first connection to animals, as it is for most people, the family pet. Um, and I don't know if we were blessed with, with an unusually intelligent um, uh, standard poodle, but, but growing up, uh, Sophie, the name of the dog, was very much an equal to, to the uh, children in my family. Uh, it was seen as a member of the family. So later on, you know, as you start reading and learning about biology, but back then, you know, there's still some talk uh, or, or not so much talk, uh, it was kind of sneered at that animals might be sentient, uh, or that, you know, even some people would say that animals couldn't feel pain. And there was a disconnect for me from what I was learning from the books, because I was pretty sure, you know, from the childhood dog that I had, that the animal was fairly sentient. Um, and, and, you know, even from watching TV earlier on, the David Attenborough sort of stuff, which are good old things, um, yeah, definitely there's always been a fascination with wildlife. I, I did initially want to be a vet amongst other things and, and study to be a vet, but I'm actually very glad that I didn't do that because I think if I'd have followed, uh, done the degree, qualified, picked up all that debt, I don't know that I would have ever left the UK. I think I would still be working as a vet in the UK now and maybe never have hit the field. Right. Yes. So interesting how our destiny unfolds, isn't it? And um, to see where, yeah. you know, where our life takes us. But, um, the, yes, this, this awareness of um, the, the, the intelligence and sentience you were saying of animals, of fish, um, I have to say it goes to insects. I was just watching a David Attenborough program on insects and, Oh, my God, Neil, uh, you know, uh, there was a giant cockroach here in Australia, goes, buries underground, gives birth, and spends six months feeding her babies before she leaves them. I mean, that's an insect. That's a cockroach. Who knew? Who knew, right? I mean, that's uh, what, what, that one of the things I found most. One of the things I found most fascinating in Borneo is the insect life. Um, insects are fascinating. Um, I mean, you know, if you drop down below that, when, when you look at uh, parasites as well, the, 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 like the ones that, that sort of make uh, ants climb to the funguses that take over ants' uh, function, uh, that kind of thing, yeah, I mean, wildlife, nature, biology is a fascinating field. And I have to say, um, that, goes, that goes even into plants and the, um, the, the intelligence of plants and uh, and trees, you know, we don't we don't necessarily have to communicate with them, but I am sure that they are very aware <laughs> and doing their work ha, in have the world. Seen the same, of planet. Have you seen the fairly interesting uh, TED talks that are out there about trees communicating with each other through the mycelium web underground and sharing resources and showing preference to sharing re resources with progeny like their relatives? versus unrelated trees nearby. Uh, so, so, yeah, to, to uh, echo your point there, there's a lot more going on that we don't realize. Absolutely. I have seen them, and it never ceases to amaze me. Just the whole mycelium network of this, this worldwide communication between all plants and probably animals and insects as well. And, uh, you know, that's, I mean, this is where we're at right now. This, this growing awareness of the intelligence, the, the sentience uh, of all life, of all life. And indigenous cultures were so much more connected to this. So they lived in, 
greater relationship, whether it's Native Americans. You know, I've spent time recently, last six years, in Peru and Costa Rica doing plant medicine with shaman, which has just given me the uh, profound, profound uh, understanding of the, uh, the, the, the power of the life of nature, right? Our connection to nature, all of nature. We're all part of this 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 intelligence of on this life on this planet and um i mean that's really where we need to go isn't it i mean it kind of ties in leah with the work you're doing and this passion that you had and i would imagine under times of great frustration and probably sadness what you see happening in places like borneo in sarawak and sabah the two states that are the malaysian if people don't know anything about Borneo, maybe you just need to fill them in a little bit. Yeah, well, I, I mean, it, it, Borneo is a big island. It's the third biggest uh, uh, um, uh, in the planet or on the planet, and uh, it's shared between Indonesia, Malaysia, and Brunei. And each, you know, part is very different. But yeah, I, I think, I mean, one thing that I wasn't quite prepared for was the level of wildlife uh, trade that, that, that happens quite openly in markets, in, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, wet markets or, or bird markets. Um, and I, I am, when I used to uh, do a lot more fundraising and lecturing, people would often say the uh, same thing afterwards. And many people would approach and say, oh, you're so lucky you've got the dream job. I wish I had your job. And I don't think that people that really love animals would last very long. I'm not saying that I don't love animals, but um, would last very long if they, they worked at the, you know, um, at this end of the stick, uh, because it can be quite brutal. You know, you, you uh, might be taking, you know, bullets out of a, an animal's face one day, cutting a chain that's embedded into their neck over 15 years out the other, or, you know, finding uh, a lot of bear paws or tiger penises, you know, parade or, you know, uh, all sorts of things. So you do see quite a lot of horror, unfortunately, and um, not just humans visited on animals. But when one of the main centers that I work with is um, it's got to be the busiest and the biggest uh, rescue center on the island. It, it takes in all species and it can't um, handle the volume of animals that come in. So frequently you've got animals in less than ideal conditions. And when they're stressed, you know, don't have enough space, they start, you know, becoming a little bit psychotic. Quite frequently, we will attack each other. So, yeah, you, you do get a level of the Hobbesian side of things, you know, of nature being a bit brutish uh, and cruel, um, rather than the, you know, the TV moment of releasing an animal from a cage and it flying back or climbing back, you know, to, to freedom. You do get those moments, and they are quite wonderful, but, but you tend to see more um, of the nastier side than the happy side. That's what happens when people live in New York City. Yeah, true, true. <laughs> anyway, um, uh, I can say that because I used to live in New Jersey, so that's, that's similar. Um, okay, so let's talk about, let's start, because there's a lot of things we could talk about and the transformation that's happening and, and um, the work that you've been doing. But I, I think let's talk, let's talk a little bit about the orangutans because they are the largest in the ape family, probably the closest in many ways to humans. I don't know if that's a true statement or not, but they certainly are amazing and huge and intelligent. Can you, can you fill us in a bit more? Give us, you know, I'm sure everyone's heard about yeah. orangutans, but what, 
What is it that's amazing about them, Leah? Probably most amazing for, for me is their intelligence. Um, and, and it's actually the other way around when you look at the great apes. So orangutan are supposed to be the least related to us. Um, with the, we are right. more closely related uh, with gorillas and chimpanzees than any of us are to, to the orangutan. So the idea being hmm. that the orangutan, or, or what went on to become the orangutan, left Africa first and then colonized uh, uh, Europe and Asia uh, in the warmer climes, uh, dominated th throughout mainland Asia until what went on to become us left Africa and then, then kind of hunted them fairly rapidly to extinction. So we used to have uh, orangutan all across mainland Asia, but they went extinct there about five to 6,000 years ago. And then there were just these vestigial populations that were left on the islands of Borneo and Sumatra, because at that time, although there were people living here, they, they hadn't really got access into the deeper part of the jungle. They, they were living around river systems and coastal areas. Uh, and then obviously about 50, 60 years ago, there was large-scale logging in Borneo that created a lot of access to areas where people just simply couldn't walk uh, uh, that far uh, before. Uh, and led to, to this, you know, uh, uh, massive decline in all primates uh, across the island, but particularly the orangutan, because as you said, they're not the largest ape, but they are the largest arboreal, as in tree-dwelling animal, in the world. So females get between 50 to 70 kilos, whereas a big dominant male can be 100, 110 kilos quite easily, and they're living 50 meters up in the air. It, it's not really designed for uh, uh, heavy animals to be that high up. Um, they are an incredible animal on so many different levels. They're, they're, they live for a very long lived, like all of the great apes. You know, 50, 60 years is not unusual um, in captivity or in the wild. They're incredibly intelligent, which is odd because most of the areas or group living, so elephants, uh, chimpanzees, humans, obviously other primates, but the orangutan is actually a solitary or semi-solitary animal. They don't live in groups. The uh, mothers live with their children for an extended period of time, anywhere between 6 to 11 years, but then eventually they, they, they will push or cast them out and go back to being solitary. So um, it is strange why they're so intelligent. It does point perhaps back to, you know, uh, a time before uh, they, they were removed from uh, Asia by uh, uh, an apex predator like us humans, but maybe they were living in a more group-type setting. Um, uh, but yeah, uh, so, so their intelligence is really the standout one. Um, that I, I, I mean, there's a lot of debate as to which ones that the, the more intelligent, the orangutan or the chimp. And I would say that they're, they're intelligent in slightly different ways. And the, the orangutan's quite a deep, ponderous thinker, and will try something once and get it right first time. Whereas chimps tend yeah. to sort of engage with problems a lot more rapidly, perhaps a bit more like humans uh, with trial and error. So a friend of mine calls orangutan the thinkers of the jungle, uh, and I think that's quite quite apt. That's so interesting. So they will like process, they process the problem before they actually attempt to solve it physically. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, and I mean, that happens much more so in captivity where perhaps they're given a chance to use this incredible uh, intelligence. Whereas the solitary existence in the wild, they, they do use some tools, but they're not really big tool users, yeah? Um, and there aren't really many uh, uh, social interactions that they have other than the big males. If they come across each other, we'll, we'll uh, fight, you know, uh, quite, quite grievously. But they're not really sharing information. Um, 
But in, in human captivity mm. or, or around human settlements, they'll watch humans and very rapidly start copying what they do. So a, a good example would be is um, a, when we're working around the enclosures, all of the orangutan will fully understand what the keys on my belt are about. Uh, and if they could snag them, they would happily uh, immediately be able to unlock the padlock on their cage. They, they wouldn't need uh, any trial and error. They may never have done that before, but by watching you know, me go around, uh, unlocking padlocks that they would all understand that. And, and I will actually, uh, I don't want to waffle on too much. I do remember one time that they, they can be quite good thieves and they'll do this, this technique called fishing. Uh, so imagine the animal sitting in a cage or in an enclosure and it wants something that's out of its reach. They will tie together bits of string, bits of rope from their enclosure or one orangutan I know called Chan will actually weave together strands of her hair, tie on that, tie that onto something like a banana peel or a coconut shell fling the rope with the, the hook on the end, if you like, out to catch objects that are outside of their reach. And I remember one time Chan did this while we were away on lunch. I, I'd left an electric drill a long way away from her cage because I know that she fishes and I didn't think she could make that far. It's quite a few, many meters away. I would say she, she managed to get something about five to six meters away from her. And just as I got into the enclosure, she pulled the drill into the cage. It wasn't plugged in, so I knew, knew that there wasn't any, but I didn't want to lose my drill. So I was trying to trade with her, saying, you know, give me this, I'll, I'll give you some peanuts or something like that. And I knew she wouldn't break the drill because she was watching me and I get on quite well with her. But before she handed it back to me, she took the plug and every gap in the cage that roughly fitted the plug, she put the, the plug into the gap and then pulled the trigger. Uh, she knew, on, probably from watching us, you know, working around, that the, the machine didn't work. I'm not saying she understood electricity or anything like that, but she understood the process, probably because, you know, it's in Borneo, we use lots of extension leads. Quite often the drill will stop working, and she would just watch people go back, check that the plug's in, in the plug socket correctly in the extension. So she had an understanding of, uh, you know, sequence to, to uh, 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 actions that um, speaks of very high intelligence. So she needed it. She knew it needed to be plugged in to something. <laughs> That's a, that was part yeah. of the process. Not quite sure what, <laughs> but she knew. Yeah. And actually, that, that orangutan Chan, we released her. Um, she, she went through rehab with us. Um, took quite a long time. Uh, she was with us for about six, seven years, and then we we put her in the forest with, with another female orangutan. And they were doing really well. And occasionally they, they would come back down to the center, uh, normally at night when no one was around, even though they're, they're certainly not a nocturnal animal, but they're smart enough to know that they can get away with things there. And she would never steal food. She would never break into the kitchen or, or ever try anything for food. She would always make a beeline for our hardware uh, uh, store. And if anyone foolishly left the, uh, keys, uh, left the uh, door unlocked at night, she seemed to know and then would run off with hammers, chisels, and swords into the jungle. <laughs> and we used to walk together one day, we'll, we'll find an Ewok village out there that, that she'll have constructed. <laughs> That is so funny, isn't it? I mean, yeah, yeah, you just may find this uh, amazing house in the middle of the jungle somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I, I mean, of course, I'm, I'm joking that they wouldn't be able to build a house, but, but uh, uh, yeah, it's, uh, they certainly understand tools and find them interesting. Although another thing I would add in with orangutan is that their, their intelligence is very, very variable, individual to individual, much like it is with humans. Um, so, you know, I, I've got some orangutan.
Peloton that I work with that you know I, I have great respect for, but, but they're dumb as rocks. And then then you have the odd one. Uh, in my experience, it's been the females more than the males. But but uh, uh, colleagues have, know, have told me of some very intelligent males as well. Um, it's just the odd individual that is just uh, at a different level of cognition. Yeah. Well, I'm sure you've got such great stories. So um, you're also working with some other endangered species. Um, I would imagine the orangutan is most well known when people think of Borneo, but there are other endangered species there. Uh, what are they, Leo? Yeah, well, well there's many. So uh, probably the animals that we spent most time working with are the sun bear or the honey bear, uh, the smallest of the bears, but also said to be the, the fiercest, uh, about the size of a rock pile, a little bit smaller than that. Uh, very, very tough animals, also arboreal, but they uh, are excellent climbers and, and spend a lot of time up in their trees. Uh, crocodiles, we have the same crocs that you guys have in Australia there, the saltwater crocodiles, uh, quite a big risk in the rivers of Borneo. Um, pangolins, if you know what they are, the animal that has kind mm. of like a, a, a dragon sort of scowl, uh coat all over it, the, uh, said mm-hmm. to be the, the most illegally trafficked animal in the world. Um, mm. Monkeys, proboscis monkeys, uh, well, j- just a huge number. Slow lorises, if you know what they are cute little kind of space alien gremlins. I don't know if that's the professional way to refer to them, but uh, a post-Indian like, like the Tarsus. There's the big eyes. That's the big one. Eyes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Wow. So, and a um, lot of the, the charity we're involved in, like the, the path of orangutan rehabilitation, we're you know, trying to train them uh, in survival critical skills and then put them back into uh, uh, the wild. Uh, that path had been well trod long before I got here, but by many giants in orangutan conservation and rehab. Uh, so really, me coming in, I just copied what they were doing. But I started trying to do this, so that my charity started trying to do the same for pretty much any species that, that was endangered that came in. So we spent a lot of time putting radio collars on binturongs, pangolins, slow lorises, releasing them into the forest, and then having follow teams to follow them for a year or so to see whether they survived and, and how they got on. So uh, that that became more and more of our work. And although we're, we were best known as Project Orangutan, actually the Charities Commission in the UK said that we needed to change our name because we were spending too much money on a species that weren't orangutan. And they said it was uh, misleading. So I think they suggested we should become Project Sunbear, Orangutan, Monkey, and Crocodile. And it was like, okay, well, we'll just change it to Borneo. <laughs> That's a very long name. <laughs> Spell out. <laughs> um, uh, so, so you... So, so you did. So you you started this nonprofit working with these endangered and injured animals and rehabilitating them. And the big there's a, there there was another facet to your work, uh, which had to do with volunteers and tours. And I know that the whole pandemic thing just stopped that in its tracks because people couldn't get into the country. So tell us a bit about what you were developing and how you see things possibly going in the future now, now that Borneo is open or, or South and Sarawak are open? Well, unfortunately, it's done terrible damage to, to its tourism uh, sector, uh, but by a very hard lockdown for two and a half years with people not being allowed in or out. Um, I think also as a tourism destination, Borneo is not really a last-minute uh, trip. It, it is a little bit for some people from Australia because it's so close. 
but a lot of people plan their trips to Borneo uh, as, as some kind of epic trip um, and might be planning it, you know, one year, two, three, longer in advance. So it, the tourism is not really bouncing back. Uh, we did have a very successful volunteer program at one of the main it's a, it's a government rescue center, but we have a very strong presence there and uh, a, a very long-standing volunteer program, probably 15 or more years old now. Uh, that's bounced back a little bit, partly because it was so popular uh, uh, before uh, the, the lockdowns, and you know it, it's been featured on TV quite a few times. There, there was quite a lot of awareness about it, so that's starting to come back a little bit. Um, the volunteering for me, I mean, when I first started, I was, I, I've always been very anti-tourism around uh, animals, um, not so much in the wild as long as it's non-intrusive, but th there's a lot of, you know, sort of sham conservation projects or uh, sham welfare projects where people come in, get to play with wildlife, you know, take uh, animals for walks on a lead in the case of lions or sleep in bed with baboons or sleep in bed with uh, baby orangutan. And, you know, I'm, I'm very anti all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. So when I first started the volunteer program, I, I, it was more of a view to trying to bring over staff rather than charging for the experience. So we would let people come over for three months at a time and kind of train them as workers to help on things like construction or providing enrichment, you know, uh, to stave off the, the stress and boredom of captivity for, for captive residents. Um, but then over time, uh, one, it's hard for people to take three months or, or off of, you know, a career or, or a life to come over and work free in Borneo. And then by understanding more what the volunteering model was, I, I saw it as a way to help fund uh, individual centers that I was working at. So we would set up these, I, I suppose you could call them tourism projects more than volunteer projects, but people would come in for two weeks or four weeks. And they would uh, pay a fee for that that would include their, their accommodation, transport, a little bit of tourism. But overwhelmingly, it was a donation to, to the work of the center, so to, to things like animal feed or staff. Um, and, yeah, that, that, that was definitely uh, the, the core way that I funded our animal welfare work, uh, directly working with the animals that were coming into these rescue centers. And then the nonprofit businesses funded more the conservation work, which was aimed more at stopping animals coming into centers like this in the first place. And um, so I, I know that that lockdown, that hard lockdown was, um, I would say devastating to what you've been doing, and uh, I think you told me that you had 150 employees, and now you're down to two. Um, yeah. What uh, What's the plan to revive? Uh, hopefully, you know, find a way to revive the work you were doing. I mean, the 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 programs you created, the the, the volunteers and the tourism, was there to support your work. What's happening? Now? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, I, I think the world is in a state of flux. So making, uh, well, humans are terrible at predicting uh, things in general anyway. Although at the beginning of the lockdowns, I, I made some fairly accurate predictions about how long it was going to go on for, expecting it to be significantly longer than the two weeks that was repeatedly promised. Um, I, I think one of the most devastating hits that the, the, uh, the charity or, or, or my work here took was that I established 12 non-profit businesses um, that, that were really, you know, the lion's share. Of, it was the bulk of all the funding that, that we had. Uh, nine of those were, went bankrupt during the lockdowns because uh, I couldn't afford to pay rent on businesses that were closed. 
At the same time, I still needed to provide tens of thousands of dollars every month for the food and staff uh, for, for, for the uh, uh, charitable work for, for the sanctuaries. So I had to shut down nearly all of the businesses, apart from three very kind landlords that um, they did. They gave us a, a waiver on the rent until we could afford to pay it back. So it's not that much they let us off, uh, but they said, okay, you pay it back once you're allowed to reopen. Um, so I managed to salvage three, and they're back up and running now. I think the size that the charity or, or the, the projects, I suppose, that, that we've got involved in, had got had become quite considerable, uh, so much so that we were able to help outside of our own work. So, so we were delivering quite significant amounts of funding to sister organizations, partner charities, group groups that we supported the work that they were doing. I don't think I'm, I think I'm too old now to, to be able to really build back up, you know, uh, new businesses from scratch, um, make them successful to then start, you know, generating money to give away again. Um, I also think that, that you know, what, what's coming down the line for, for us as, as we move forward in all of this um, means that that probably won't be a very good use of my time anyway. I, I don't expect the world will remain open. I, I think we've been given a brief window of opening that, that, that may well close again. Mm. Yeah, that's a pretty dire prediction, which you're not alone in, that especially with uh, these you know, talks of this passport, the vaccine passport, and all the ways it can be controlled. Um, so, so you're still doing your work. You're still able to help the rehabilitation. You have enough funds coming in. Do you get government support? Do you get Malaysian government support? <laughs> oh. okay. No, no, we don't. That would be fair to say. Um, oh, sorry, that's not entirely true. But one of the centers we work at, the, the, the biggest one that I mentioned, um, actually the, the government did increase funding when, when our funding got taken out. So sorry, I, I shouldn't have laughed so much. So it, it varies place <laughs> to place, but no, um, it, it, I wouldn't say that that was a significant contribution. I think by scaling back, uh, by being forced to scale back all of the money that we were donating to other groups, um, whilst that was extremely painful, and, and most of those groups uh, failed and, and, and shut and, and won't reopen, you know, in, in their endeavours uh, during the lockdowns. Um, in terms of building back up the, the sanctuary that we were that we are most associated with, this government rescue centre, that is starting to pick itself back up. So, so we had some incredibly generous past volunteers that donated money uh, uh, during the lockdown. So certainly in the first year, quite a significant amount. Um, I was able to do quite a lot of consultancy work in the, the first uh, uh, year in particular. Uh, one of the advantages of being placed under house arrest and, and not having to or any of my businesses meant that my time was freed up quite a lot. So I put that between joining quite a few uh, think tanks you know, around the world that popped up in response to this, and really that's been my focus for the last three years. Um, but then freelancing you know, uh, uh, as a consultant to earn enough money to cover the, the core function of what we were doing, the, the, the student and those two members of the staff that, that I managed to keep at the center. Um, since we've reopened, I, I have two bars that, that, that uh, remain, and they are they are covering the cost, the day-to-day costs of the center. Um, so we are in a stable position now, and if the volunteers and tourists do continue to come back, then we'll, we'll move back into a, a stronger position, I hope. Well, that's good. I hope so. Um, uh, I, you know, I, I think, you know, you, you know, we've talked about so many um, 
inspiring things that you're doing. But maybe we just need to talk about the realities of what's really happening in, in, in Borneo and why, why this has been such a passion for you in trying to bring awareness to what's going on um, as, you know, this relentless development and destruction of the forest continues. Yeah, um, I I think like like most people that that are interested in these things, there are your core scientists that that do it just for for you know balancing the equation, so to speak. But but there there is that empathy that I have when I see something human or animal suffering that I want to alleviate that suffering. So I I think when you when you see a lot of suffering or bad things happening. The, the sad truth is, and I, I think I've realized this my whole life, but, but it came into to clearer focus in the last three years, is that most people will just recoil when they see something, you know, violent or unpleasant and stop looking at it um, because it makes them feel bad and gravitate towards things that make them feel good, which, you know, um, is, is fair enough. I, I guess animals do exactly the same thing. But there is a small subset uh, of people that when they see horrible things happening, just throw themselves at it and try to stop it, hoping that everyone else is going to come on board. Um, and you know, to, to a degree, in, in the response to the last three years, there, there are you know collections of humanity that never would have spoken to each other or, or crossed paths with one another that are all working uh, full time, free of charge, on trying to you know um, limit some of the harms that appear to be being done to society and individuals. So. That there are still people out there that, that that will push back. I just think the sad reality is that that people um, have very short attention spans, and that those attention spans can be hijacked quite easily in this uh, di- digital landscape. You know, by Netflix or, or whatever you know uh, uh, is going on at the time, or, or whatever's going on in the news cycle, so that people end up so distracted they can't focus and apply themselves to, to tackling problems. I don't know if that made any sense. Well, I'm, I think it, I think it makes sense, and I, I mean, I know that your, you know, your work in in Borneo is seeing that so clearly. I mean, uh, uh, yeah, I can't, I can't imagine. Um, our, let me just ask you this question: In in, in Borneo, uh, is it populated mostly by the indigenous people, or or does Malaysia bring Malay Malaysians over to populate? Or to integrate not so much in Sarawak and Sabah. So in, in Indonesia, I mean, I mean, there's, there's a real mix of people here, and, and actually, people get on remarkably well uh, uh, with each other. So uh, there, there's a strong Chinese uh, community that the uh, uh, in, in, uh, that they're, they're Malaysian, like this sixth generation Malaysian, but uh, Chinese ethnicity. That, that's quite a big group in Malaysian uh, Borneo, in the north of the island. Mm-hmm. There are, of course, people uh, Malays from, from uh, Peninsula. Uh, that have been living here for a very long time as well, although that's certainly not the bulk of the population. I would say the bulk in, in North uh, Borneo, Malaysian side, are the indigenous, the, the Dayaks. Um, then in Indonesia, below us, historically the Dayaks were the bulk of the population, uh, with a smattering of Chinese as well. But then Indonesia had its transmigration uh, program, uh, where they were trying to you know, get people out of more overpopulated areas and resettle them in Borneo. Um, so there, the, the population has been, you know, uh, manipulated quite a lot uh, in different areas. But, but yeah, across the island, on balance, it will be the Dayaks. Right. 
And then there's the Sultan of Brunei. I must I must confess I know very little about Brunei. Uh, I know I know two things that it's fabulously wealthy and it doesn't need my help. And two, if you go on Google Maps and you look at the island, there's this one very dark patch of uh, uh, dark green, and it perfectly matches the border of Brunei. So Brunei, because of its vast oil uh, reserves, hasn't hasn't uh, uh, logged its forests. It didn't need to. It was you know getting all the money it needed from uh, oil. So its forest is in remarkably good. Uh, shape, but uh, for, for whatever reason, it could be because of a couple of rivers that are around uh, that there historically weren't any orangutan in, Borne, uh, in Brunei. So, um, yeah, but, but the forest is an exceptional health, but I, I've only been there a couple of times. I know very little about the place. Yeah, it's so interesting. People don't know. The Sultan of Brunei, however that was created, which is interesting to even call the Sultanate, but it is one of, he is one of the most fabulously wealthy people in the world, the Sultan of Brunei, in this, yeah. little, this, little, this little area stuck in between these two states in, of, on the Malaysian side of Borneo. Yeah, it's a strange world. Uh, it's a strange world. So, so um, I, I also know that they don't allow alcohol in Brunei, and that's probably one of the reasons I haven't been there, uh, or certainly not stayed there for longer than a night. <laughs> I can't imagine it's not going on in there, however. <laughs> um, so, so um, how can people support your work now, Leo, with your project, Borneo.org, which is the website? Yeah, so our website is the, the best place to learn a little bit about us. I am a complete Luddite when it comes to technology, so I, I've had to rely over the years on volunteers just building websites uh, for me. Uh, which they've done an amazing job, and I'm very, very grateful for it. But then the websites tend to age quite a lot because I, I can't code. I, I, I don't really like using computers so much, to be honest. Um, uh, so it's not. It, it's a good overview of what we do, and it's a vehicle for trying to find people to uh, join either the tours, come work for us, or, or join one of the volunteer programs. And if people are interested in learning more about Borneo and our work, then certainly the, the volunteering, although it is paid volunteering, is a, uh, a an excellent way to sort of dip your toe in the water. Um, I used to do a lot more lecturing, particularly in Australia, uh, uh, pre-lockdown, but um, I, I don't think I'll be able to fit that in any time soon. But, yeah, our, our website is a great way to, to get a quick overview of us. Well, that's why uh, oh, I was Zooming you know, being able to zoom you in anywhere in the world is the best way to solve that problem, right? You <laughs> can be anywhere, as we have learned. But I want to, you know, we've been talking, and, and because um, I have a history, you know, my memories and, of traveling around, and it's an amazing, it's a, an amazing part of the world. So, I, you know, I've been inspired. You inspired me to think, you know, maybe... Maybe I can, uh, maybe I, I, you know, I will go back. I, I would love to do the tour, but I, I, I want you to talk a bit about what you do on your tour. And I'm putting it out there for anyone who's listening. If you want the most amazing experience, um, it's not Club Med, <laughs> but it's life transforming to do these journeys, which I prefer. And would be interested in in taking a trip and, and um being part of uh, Leo's tours that take you, well, let, you'll explain, Leo, what goes on in the tours. I mean, you have the volunteer program where people can actually work there at your center, but then you also have, at least from the website, this tour experience. 
So tell us a bit about yes. what would be well, that happening too was, if, that too if was, the group came over. Yeah. So the, that well, the two that's on our website and a few travel agents around the world sell uh, that for us as well. Um, that was always immensely popular. Now that wasn't so much about um, designed to uh, fund looking after animals in captivity. It was designed to put money into local communities that had orangutan living on their land. Uh, so that, that was tied more towards conservation than, than welfare, if you like. Um, and, yeah, I mean, it was immensely popular. I think partly because it was very cheap for, for where we took people. Um, it, we really did take them right into the heart, uh, about as far away from humans as you could possibly get in the Malaysian side uh, uh, of the island. Um, so there was a little bit of light tourism to soften people up or, or let people acclimate, where we'd taken just some fairly accessible national parks uh, close to the city. Then we would bring them out to the wildlife center that, that, that we were based at and uh, have them do very light activities for a day or two days, maybe clean a few cages, make some enrichment for the animals. And then we would take them out to the deep jungle where, where, uh, with the aim of trying to spot wild orangutan. And we would do five or seven days, depending on the tour, not quite cold camping. We'd build a lodge and, you know, there was a gas cooker, but it certainly wasn't like an eco lodge. It was a heart in the middle of the jungle, uh, living alongside a local community that live out there full time who would provide the food and things like that. And yeah, it was hugely successful, very popular. Uh, in fact, it used to be fully booked for like two, three years in advance. Um, we're hoping that one kicks back in, but but I have to uh, you know build back up a fair bit of infrastructure. But another thing that we would do for small groups of uh, uh, from Australia actually and the states um, would be that groups might contact us and say, okay, I have five people or however many people here for our core interests. We'd love to see proboscis monkey, or we've got a particular interest in bears, and then we would just bespoke a, a, a tour for them. Um, the we, Although I run the tours for profit to fund the uh, uh, charitable work, we never really, well, I was never really that comfortable with making too much uh, profit. So I, I saw the tours as being quite educational and that had a value in and of itself. Uh, so as long as we made money for the communities that we were visiting, it wasn't. It wasn't about making cash, so, so to speak. So they, they were, I don't know, I think we were selling those for about £600 for two weeks in Borneo, for, for fully inclusive, taking people out into the middle of nowhere. So that, that was you know, a, a very cheap holiday. Um, and, yeah, we, we haven't put those uh, back on just yet because the tourism numbers are still absolutely shockingly low here, but certainly would look to do those again in the future. Well, that's exciting for for me because um, I, I know that when uh, you can go in and have such an authentic experience, right? This is, this is going into pristine areas that are so few these, these days in the world and live so close to nature with the animals. You know, I said it earlier, and, and I truly believe it's absolutely life-changing. And you have to be someone who is willing to have, uh, you know, an adventure out of the norm, but do something of real value and service in the world. And that appeals to me. Uh, you know, I've always preferred the path he's taken. So, um, you know, I'm going to set that as an intention, Leo, that I would like to bring a small group of people, and if no one else wants to come with me, I just may have to come by myself, 
to have this unique experience while we still can. I mean, not only while we still can, while we can still travel, but while there's still this wildness available to us with your, especially with your work there. Well, I would love to welcome you here. Uh, one of the advantages of being here for 18 years is I, I think I've managed to find some of the most beautiful very far off the, the beaten track. So, uh, yeah, um, I, I mean, the tours that we do, we, I think you mentioned Club Med. That's certainly not us. Um, and it's not, you know, we're a four-star or five-star hotel. We're putting people up in, in really authentic locations. But you do need that kind of, you know, easy going with the flow kind of more backpacker mentality than uh you know to two two suitcases uh uh on, on those uh mentality. <laughs> well I mean you could have that mentality but you'd probably have a terrible time but when you were in, in the middle of a jungle <laughs> having a coffee hour. Yeah. <laughs> well I know it it those experiences are, are magical. Um, there's something that happens with the spiritual experience. Um, it's just awakening of senses that we don't have when we live our normal city, you know, Western lifestyle. So anyway, now, I think we've made the point that this is an extraordinary opportunity that uh, I'm putting out there to all my listeners. If anyone feels curious or drawn to the possibility of having two weeks, with Leo, who's an incredible guide in this in this unique part of the world, email me. <laughs> Get back in touch with me or contact Leo at projectborneo.org. Or, uh, yeah, email me. You can go to my website, Dr. Cheryl Selman. Email me there or my Facebook page, What Women Must Know. Message me there. Let's make this happen. This is for us, and this is to support Leo and his work and to, to and to support all those beings in the jungle that really need our support right now as they're being threatened. So um, I, I would, I've never actually I would, I mean, you know, I've never done this on the show. Well, thank you, thank you. I, I would add in one other shout out. Just on the off chance, there's a, a, a listener to, to your uh, show that fancies a dramatic change of life. Well, so a lot of my staff used to be uh, foreign volunteers that would come over and work, as I said, for three months, or many of them would, would end up working for a year, two, three, four, even longer. I think the longest stay for about eight or nine uh, uh, years. And I don't have any staff at the moment, and, and I am looking for people. Uh, they have to be the right kind of people to actually come and work for the charity. We, we cover food, accommodation, and we provide a local stipend, uh, but we, it, it, there is no salary. Um, but if someone really fancied, you know, uh, taking a major leap and uh, a major change in life, we are recruiting for people to work full-time for the charity. Well, that's quite an invitation, I have to say. <laughs> so tempting. <laughs> That'd be great. Well, um, yeah, Leo, I, I just have to say with my deepest appreciation and gratitude to you for this passion that you have and that you've manifested and hanging in there during this time of, un, you know, just unexpected, um, I want to say, it's like devastation to your program, to your charities, and you're still here. And you, you know, still doing your best. And I, I want to be able to support you 
And I trust people listening will feel your passion and this great dedication to important work for the truly the planet, truly the planet. And um, I'm sure people will just be um, so curious to what you're doing and find ways to support you. Let's see what happens with this conversation and putting it out there, setting our intention. Um, So we only have a minute or so left, Leo. Is there something you'd like to say to kind of wind things up or something you want to add before we have to say goodbye? No, I think the book for staff was my close. Thank you very much for inviting me on. Uh, Thank you uh, to your audience for listening. And, uh, yeah, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Well, you're so welcome. And, uh, again, uh, people can check out Leo's work at projectborneo.org and see what calls you or find ways you can support him and the orangutans and the other animals that have been injured and rescued that need your help. So uh, thank you all for listening, and uh, I'll be talking to you again next week. And until then, always honor the wisdom of your feminine self. This is Dr. Cheryl Selman. You're listening to What Women Must Know. See you next week. Bye for now.